Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at the British people's perception of the Second World War. We've got Frederick Taylor, the fantastic best-selling author and historian who takes us all the way back to autumn 1938, when Europe believed in the promise of peace. It was still reeling from the ravages of the Great War, and its people were desperate to rebuild their lives in a new, safe and stable era. But, as we know, only a year later, the fateful decisions of just a few men had led Europe into war. And so Frederick takes us through a fascinating history based on amazing archival research and primary interviews with those who lived through the Second World War as he explains how the war had a profound and lasting impact on millions of innocent people. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast in this momentous week. Tell me, what was the British population's attitude towards going to war this week, 80 years ago, in September 1939? Well, the population's attitude was going to war in 1939 remained began as at the end of 38 during the Munich crisis and ended up almost a year later in September 39 as being very reluctant to go to war, but a certain determination, a certain feeling that Hitler could not be negotiated with and had to be resisted spread, and that reluctance then was tinged with a certain determination, I would say, by August, September 1939. So my book's called The War Already Wanted because neither actually did most of the German population, despite their militaristic traditions and the constant barrage of propaganda, at least at the beginning of our time period, which of course the end of 38, things slightly changed again by September 39. But the basic idea is that I suppose I was interested in finding out the attitude of people in both countries, and this Germany and Britain. Germany is my second language and my field of interest in history has been over the years. And Britain, of course, is my native country and I wanted to just compare the two. See, okay, we have, you know, Chamberlain running back and forth, seeing Hitler and all the rest of it, and we have the nice old gentleman with the umbrella and the the mad sociopathic dictator. What were their peoples actually thinking and feeling about how all this would affect their lives at the time? That's really why I decided to write the book. How do we know what they felt? What tools have you got as a historian? Well, sadly, we're reaching the very end of living memory of that period when I wrote books on... Dresden and even my book on the denazification of Germany from 1945 onwards 
it was possible to talk to quite a lot of people who were reasonably adult at the time and, and uh, could form opinions and notice things that, you know, were of interest. Now, they're mostly children. There are a few people I interviewed, quite a lot of people in the 90s, in both Britain and in Germany. I got some material out of it, and it was fascinating. They were wonderful people to meet. But basically, I was put back onto diaries, letters. The audio recordings in the Imperial War Museum, of course, are fantastic. And they're an online resource that anybody can consult. And these go back to the first recordings made in the 60s and 70s. So you have quite a lot of people who were around at the time. As far as other sources go, you've got the wonderful Mass Observation Archive, which was um, based on diaries and, and questionnaires filled out by ordinary people for the Mass Observation Foundation that was uh, instituted in the mid-1930s. Now, in Germany, of course, you have no free press. You have no free public expression of opinion anyway by this time. So the funny thing is, instead of using public opinion polls and, and mass observation diaries and so on, of course, you, re, you, you rely for your information about what the public was feeling largely on the Gestapo and the uh, security services who did report overheard conversations and general observations on public mood to their party cent central and government centres over these years. And so one basically has to build up a mosaic out of all these different sources, and of course including in Britain and Germany newspapers, particularly provincial newspapers, and particularly on the inside pages, not the big headlines about Chamberlain meeting Hitler, but the letters pages, you know, little things going on here and there throughout both countries at that point, which give you pointers as to how people were feeling and the general tone of life at the time. And so one builds up this kind of picture and it's tricky you have to piece it together it was hard work and it took quite a long time actually how trusting were the british people in 1939 today we seem to live in a world where news sources are mistrusted we've got deep fake videos coming out we got fake news we got troll farms what methods of news distribution were there in 1939 and were they trusted it was mainly through newspapers, through, you know, the usual things. You know, if, if they'd had water coolers in those days, it would have been water cooler conversations. I dare say it was tea urn conversations. The usual things, there was the radio. I think people, I get the feeling, were slightly cynical. They sort of trusted Chamberlain. He'd been a very reliable Chancellor of the Exchequer and the strongman of the government, basically, going through the 1930s in Britain. They respected him. They thought he was basically a decent man. They were cynical about the, what the government was actually up to. Some of them thought that he sympathised with the fascists secretly because he was well known as an anti-communist. Some of them thought, you know, the other way, that, that he was in fact giving in to Hitler far too much. So I think on the whole people trusted the government more than they do now perhaps, but it wasn't so different. In other words... People weren't sort of absurdly trusting, as they're often portrayed as being having been in the past. I think people were critical, uh, thoughtful, and, uh, and distrusted the government as much as naturally any citizen should, I suppose. Talk me through the days, the weeks after the outbreak of war. I mean, I think even people steeped in the history of the war, passionate about the history of the Second World War, I bet they know relatively little about those few months. Well, I mean, you had the crisis leading up to it when I think most people in both countries actually still didn't really think that there would be 
necessarily be a war. They thought that, you know, as had happened so often over the last few years, that some last-minute formula would be uh, cobbled together, you know, the whole idea that, you know, these things always go to the wire, which we're now familiar with again. It came as a shock, I think, when Hitler invaded Poland, again in both countries, and there was obviously quite a long hiatus then. He invaded Poland before dawn on September the 1st, And we didn't actually declare war on Germany for well in excess of 48 hours after that. There were various things going back and forth. And could the government somehow retrieve the situation? Could the French be persuaded to do this? And could the Germans be persuaded to do that? And what about the Italians? Could they intervene and so on? So there was still this feeling that somehow peace could be cobbled together. But an invasion is invasion. When you had the Munich crisis just under a year earlier, no actual military operation occurred. It was about to occur when the conference was called, when Hitler realised he didn't actually have public support in Germany for a war against Czechoslovakia. But what happened was people basically went out. I mean, I've got a wonderful story of these two young men going out for a drink in a pub in South Wales uh, on the night, on the Saturday night, that is September the 2nd, in other words, after the invasion of Poland, before the declaration of war. And they all get a bit drunk and they dance around and some people express their thoughts about how frightened they are about the future and so on. Then they go home and he gets up in the morning and starts mending his landlady's bike and misses the announcement of the outbreak of war, the young man concerned. So, you know, it came as a bit of a surprise and then there was immediately, and this is, of course, the thing everybody remembers, there was an air raid alert. And it wasn't just in London, it was in London, and that's what most people remember. But it seems that it seems to have happened in other parts of the country too. And as far as I can see, certainly on the RAF website, it says that a French plane had arrived over England unannounced during the first minutes of the war, and that's what set off the alert. So it wasn't as if the Germans had been sneakily running some kind of raid on um, Britain. Uh, but it's what everybody remembers, and everybody remembers wondering what to do. One chap I remember was found in the bath and sort of leapt out of the bath and wondered whether he should leave the house without putting his clothes on again or, or what. What did one do? So that happened. And then, of course, I suppose, after the Prime Minister's announcement and after that, people started thinking, OK, what can we do? It was It was a Sunday... Some people have been going into the local council offices and town halls to help out, particularly uh, civil servants and local government employees. So there was all that was was in train. But basically, it just was very quiet. I mean, yes, people had been called up over the weekend, reservists and so on. But basically, there must have been a kind of then a sort of eerie hiatus because you could still hear the news going on the the Germans bombing towns in Poland and advancing and so on but obviously nothing happened and indeed of course as we know because it wasn't really until May 1940 that anything did really happen on the home front it was a strange time Okay Tristan you've got 50 seconds Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. 
we've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. In your research, what did people think was going to happen? You know, I'm, I'm remembering the, you know, the dire predictions of aerial bombardment uh, in the interwar years. Did people think the war was going to touch communities back home? Or do they think it would be something that was fought in a foreign field? Oh, I, th- I think people were uh, d- d- deeply afraid of, of, of bombing. Yes, I mean, the, f- the bomber will always get through was the famous quote from Stanley Baldwin, which he actually made even before Hitler came to power, actually, in 1932, that he, he made that remark. That was the main thing, I think, that most people were afraid of and, and, and made their preparations accordingly. Of course, the Dishing out of gas masks, for instance, was because people expected gas to be used uh, and dropped. I mean, various theoretical papers written by various uh, war strategists back in the 20s and 30s had assumed that, you know, poison gas would be dropped from aircraft and so on. And so there's a very strong feeling. Of course, it was never 
actually used. But people were frightened of that. They, they, they assumed, I think, as had been in the First World War, that there would be problems. There would be problems with food. There would be problems with, you know, all sorts of other things like that. I mean, for instance, there was the great cat and dog massacre uh, in London where actually 400,000 pets were kind of euthanized during the first week of the war by people terrified that they wouldn't be able to take them out of London when they were evacuated or there wouldn't be enough food for the cats and dogs. Or It was a kind of very strange kind of psychosis, almost like one of those kind of medieval um, uh, psychoses that spread, you know, paranoid psychoses. Uh, so there was a very strong feeling of being under threat, but it was mainly from the air. I don't think at that point people were afraid of being invaded. And there doesn't seem to be anything like it, for instance, in Germany, a feeling that there would suddenly be a lot of bombing going on and that one had to go and, and hide in one's uh, air raid shelter. They didn't have air raid shelters so much in their gardens, of course, in Germany. It was much more communal than in Britain. So I think, yeah, the strange, the strange hiatus occurred. Do you get the same optimism about a short war that you see in 1914? I don't know about that. I think most people had learned, and I say again, in both countries, Britain and Germany, from the First World War, that with the big industrial nations getting into the ring with each other and slugging it out, so to speak, that it wasn't going to be all over in uh, before the end of the first round. And we'd learned that between 1914 and 1918. So... I think some people thought and hoped that France and Britain between them, and perhaps even if the Poles could resist long enough, would be able to defeat Germany quickly. But I think most people expected the whole thing to be pretty grim. That's why they tried to avoid it in the first place. What changed in Britain after the outbreak of war? I think Germany, of course, had begun preparing for air war within months of Hitler taking power. I mean, the, the Luftschutzbund, the air precaution organisation in Germany, had been founded in 1933 with, with Hermann Goering running it. And by 1938-39 had literally millions of people involved. And they'd been involved for years. It had paid officials. It was an enormous organisation. In Britain, it wasn't really until 37-38 that the whole thing started up. A lot of local councils, particularly Labour councils, were against what they called the militarisation of society. So they did not necessarily cooperate in building up anti-air raid organisations. But I think the, the Munich crisis and then particularly after the Germans had marched into the rest of Czechoslovakia in March 1939, that people really did start to realise that something had to be done. So hundreds of thousands of people did uh, join up either as, you know, to work as air raid wardens or learning to use first aid, all the rest of the things that were required to quickly build up some capacity for air raid protection. So that happened. But I think basically it was very much a civilian society. I mean, one has to be a bit cautious about this, as Orwell pointed out. Large numbers of the British middle and upper middle classes had, in fact, had military training at school in the uh, OTCs. But by and large, most Brits were civilians and expected the army to go off and police the empire and provide a kind of basic protection for the homeland. But it need not involve civilians unless there was an actual war. So, of course, when we did actually introduce a form of conscription 
in uh, the late spring of 1939. It wasn't called conscription. It was called military training. It lasted six months. They had special uniforms, much better food than ordinary soldiers, much less discipline and so on. The whole idea was that the government was very uh, conscious that the British were pretty civilian-minded and you had to move very carefully if you were going to introduce some form of peacetime conscription. And in fact, the 30 or 40,000 young men who did show up for trading in July ended up, generally speaking, doing things like guarding bridges and tunnels against the IRA, because, of course, there was a parallel in 1939. There was an IRA campaign going on in the mainland, very similar to the one in the, in the 70s and 80s. So there was that. In Germany, of course, it was a thoroughly militarised society by the mid-1930s, let alone the late 1930s, completely different. Militarisation was, in effect, the norm and some German observers notice that. You notice a couple of diary entries where people say, goodness me, the British are introducing conscription. They must be taking this very seriously. Germans kind of expect conscription. The British don't. And they don't like putting on their uniforms unless they really have to. So the the actual introduction of, of, of conscription, even of a limited sort in Britain, did attract notice abroad and in Germany. So you had a society in the summer of 39, August, September 39, it wasn't really thoroughly militarised yet, the British society that it was, but it pretty quickly got that way. I mean, almost everybody who wanted to join up joined up and conscription was introduced. There was no nonsense about having to persuade people to uh, join the army as one well had to in the first two years of the First World War. It was pretty clear that both the, the Air Force, the Navy and, and the army needed to be upscaled and, and quick smart, particularly the army. Was there one moment, was it, was it whether it was air activity, the naval battles, uh, the sinking of passenger ships like the Athenia, which actually occurred very early in the war on the 3rd of September, uh, what, was the, what was the moment that sort of convinced the British public that they were at war, where war made itself felt? I think the sinking of the ships, and when there, really, there were really no air raids on the British mainland until the late spring of uh, 1940, it was the fear of the air raids that was there as a constant thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the, the reports from Poland, the sinking of particularly passenger ships, all these things gave people a notion that we were at war, despite this kind of slightly unreal calm that in many ways pertained. You know, our, our boys were being sent off to France and so on. Uh, conscripts were being brought in. I have to say that the uh, the privileged conscripts of, of, of the call-up from July 1939 pretty soon were absorbed into the main British army and had just as tough a life as everybody else, as, of course, did rapidly uh, hundreds of thousands, not to say eventually millions of other young British men and women. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, I think there was an eerie feeling of impending doom, but not actually really doom. That didn't really happen until May 1940. I mean, the Poles were beaten, and they fought bravely, but were inevitably succumbed to vastly superior force. So by, you know, the beginning of October, there was basically no fighting going on. And one had this, this eerie silence for the rest of the winter. You've done this twin study, Britain and Germany. When you look at those two countries, do you see mostly similarity or, or does it, they feel very different? These were two, obviously, in many ways, superficially similar, but 
in many other ways, profoundly different uh, societies. I mean, one was totalitarian, of course, and highly militarised. One was civilian-minded, but actually, of course, was at the heart of an enormous empire, which was not exactly held together by sweet persuasion either. So one had two societies that were very different. The British were allowed at home this illusion of being very civilian and, and kind of enjoying the privileges of kind of, if you will, empire without any of the real feeling of responsibility or involvement in it, except for those who were obviously over in Palestine fighting the rebels there or trying to keep Congress in check in India and all the rest of those things that the British had to do to keep their empire reasonably intact during the 1930s when it slowly came under threat from various things, actually, I mean, including you know, the expansion of Japan uh, and so on. But the Germans, the thing that interests me about the German population is not that they were basically unwilling to go to war unless it was strictly necessary. They really didn't want another war because they'd already had one and it was a terrible experience for them. Not that they did that in the way that the British did. The British were equally reluctant. But they did it despite being living in a highly militarised society where information closely controlled and had been for years before the outbreak of war. There was still this basic good sense that a war would be a disaster. The whole way in which that changed between September 38 and September 39 was that the German government realised that and actually upped its game. I mean, Goebbels unleashed in the late spring and early summer of 1939 a absolute tidal wave of propaganda about Polish atrocities, about Germany being encircled by its enemies, and so on. I mean, you know, there, were, there was stuff in German newspapers about how 70% of Poles had tuberculosis or trachomic eye infections, and 20% of Poles had syphilis. They were thieves, they were drunks. I mean, it's all a bit familiar, I'm afraid, from some of the rhetoric you hear these days as well. But this kind of thing was going on. And eventually, I think the German state managed not to exactly enthuse its citizens for a new war, but they neutralised any objections they might have had. There's definitely a switch towards feeling the way that the German government wants it to feel, which one didn't have in rather the autumn of 1938. In the autumn of 39, the German public was persuadable that this was a good war. And, of course, once a war starts, um, you've got the ultimate echo chamber in both countries and everything changes. So even if people were reluctant to go to war in the first place, once they're there, once the war has started, people tend to just, you know, flock to the flag and get on with it. And that was true in both countries, I think. Well, that's sobering stuff. Thank you very much, Fred Taylor. Tell us the name of your book. The name of the book is The War That Nobody Wanted. 1939, The War That Nobody Wanted, A People's History. Fred, thanks for coming on the pod. You're most welcome. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.